Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is the much-anticipated episode number 300 being recorded on Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, not only is this the first show of 2023, it's a big milestone for us with episode 300. What better way to celebrate than having one of our oldest friends for both you and I personally, but also to the show, back for an update. Uh, Matt Kness, he was last on the show back in episode 79. I think many listeners will remember that one, and certainly your mom, who's one of our biggest fans. Uh, and back then, he was CEO of ModCloth. A lot has changed since then, so we're looking forward to getting an update. Some of the highlights uh, Matt helped sell ModCloth to Walmart. He was exec chair and interim CEO at Lucky Brand. He's on several boards, been advisory to several companies. And since September of 2022, he has been CEO of GoodwillFinds.com. Matt, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh, Matt. We are really excited to catch up. Um it seems like if you factor in the, the pandemic, uh, your last episode was about 15 years ago. If I'm, um, and so uh, ha- I'm happy to report we've added a bunch of listeners since then. Um, so before we jump into it, can you kind of remind the listeners about your background and how you got into e-commerce? Yeah, happy to. Uh, I like to think about my career or, or having two careers uh, to date. Uh, the first one was very foundational for uh, what I'm doing now, but very quantitative, process-oriented, mechanical engineering, patent law, manufacturing, ops consulting, things that had nothing to do with retail or fashion or e-commerce. And then I fell into uh, the category when I was a full-time consultant at Burt Snowboard's uh, about 16, 17 years ago and fell in love with lifestyle brands and have tried to stay in that lane uh, for the majority of uh, that time period since. Uh, from burnt snowboards, I went on to Urban Outfitters, was there for close to eight years, ostensibly in a head of growth role. Uh, my last title there was Chief Strategy Officer. And then from there, I went to ModCloth, where I was the CEO for three years and uh, was running the company when we sold it to Walmart. Um, I will say that uh, I've, in hindsight, found myself attracted to these amazing consumer lifestyle brands that are experiencing inflection points, either in their business or in the industry. Uh, When I was at Burton, Snowboarding was really, for the first time, finding a mass audience crossing over into the Olympics, the next games. And uh, when I was at Urban, it was the rise of Web 2.0. And I got to ride that wave my entire time there and and uh, really uh, be on the forefront of pioneering You know what everybody now calls omni-channel. Uh, ModCloth, uh, the founder there, Susan Koger, was one of the the pioneers of inclusive fashion. And so uh, I felt personally accountable to, to try to scale that. And I think we influenced the industry, uh, specifically uh, plus size women's fashion. And, you know, today you look around and it's, it's become pretty normative for brands to design into extra, extra small to 4X. And I'm really proud of the work we did at ModCloth being on the front end of that. And then, um, I did some consulting work at Afterpay where buy now, pay later was really just becoming a thing where younger consumers were focused more on debit versus credit products. So I was really fortunate to get connected with that team and enjoyed uh, partnering with them and being an advisor. Um, And then, you know, what I'm doing now at Goodwill, where secondhand is really having a moment in the culture and 
getting a chance to come in and, and lead a ground up startup for the Goodwill Network and helping them to, to digitize, so to speak, and you know, bring this new marketplace into the world uh, is just for me like the next chapter in that really uh, fortunate career, second career that I've had. Very cool. And uh, I know some of those roles were Bay Area based, but you are a Philly guy, correct? Philly guy, born and raised. I'm I'm probably on the short list of people who have moved back to Philly twice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was in Boston the first time when um, my wife became preggers with our oldest, and we wanted to be closer to family. And then the second time was when we were in the Bay Area after I left Walmart. Uh, we had a break in the action, and our Oldest was about to start high school, and we decided we wanted to be back here uh, for the high school years. But um, we've lived all around, and I tr- obviously travel a lot for work. So um, I have an affinity for the Bay Area as, as well as some other places around the country, but but Philly's the hometown. Yeah, but I'm assuming it's Philly sports teams, most importantly. I have been an Eagle season ticket holder since 2000. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Um, and uh, for people that don't know, Philadelphia and uh, Pennsylvania as a whole is a is is a weird uh, e-commerce um, concentration point. Like there's a, a lot of e-commerce kind of was born or gravitated in the area. So I think of like Mark Rubin and uh, um, Dick Sporting Good in in, uh, in Pittsburgh and uh, uh, Urban obviously was a, a a huge player there. Was Urban your first like hardcore e-commerce experience or were you doing a lot of e-commerce at Burton? I was not at Burton. Um, Urban is really where I started to cut my teeth on e-com. We we really saw it as uh, direct-to-consumer more than e-commerce. It was really about um, this, when I got there, this billion-dollar consolidated enterprise across their three main brands, Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, and Free People. And the business had started as a catalog division uh, of what was, you know, let's call it 95% of the sales came through their store channel um, for for retail um, versus um, direct-to-consumer. And so when I got there, or, you know, there was a, there was a hundred million um, consolidated direct-to-consumer business, which was split between catalog and e-commerce um but it was uh nascent it was not a strategic focus and then you know the founder there dick hayne really had this preternatural understanding of consumer behavior and where the industry was going and uh he had a vision for how to scale the business multi-channel and so uh we were all trying to make that that future reality every day for the eight years I was there. And, and we had a lot of success going back to your point about Pennsylvania and Philly uh, first round capital. Um, one of their, uh, their, 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 I believe their uh, original headquarters. And then one of their, their major offices uh, is in Philly. And so um, I think, I think a lot of it uh, stems from their presence as well. Not, not just, uh, Decane and Rubin and some others, but also Philly from a talent perspective is kind of like a sixth suburb or or borough of New York, where you get a lot of folks in New York, and then they realize that um, you know it's just the standard of living, the cost of living is so much better uh, in Philadelphia, and so you get a lot of transplants to come down to to Philly as well, working in ecom. Yeah, um, and I I want to say. I met you. I think we all met on the shop.org board when you were at Urban, um, later in your, your tenure at Urban. And, uh, some of my fondest memories, another, uh, good friend of the show, Billy May, who at the time was at Abercrombie, is the two of you like heckling each other about like, uh, your two brands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, um, that was, that was really fun for me because, you know, Urban um, was pretty insular, you know, meaning that uh, we were so obsessively focused on the customer and on the fashion trends and on what we were doing internally that we never really thought about competition. 
So we didn't spend a ton of time looking around the industry. So for me, that was that was kind of a, an introduction to what else was happening across the industry. Um, and then uh, Billy occasionally would call me and say, hey, you guys make me look bad because you just had another great quarter <laughs> with <laughs> e-com growing. And, you know, your uh, your results are now the benchmark that I have to deliver against. Um, but, you know, what I what I found in that shop or community, which is now part of NRF, is that uh, it was not very competitive. It was very collaborative. I couldn't believe um, how much everybody supported each other, wanted to share strategies and ideas and et cetera. And I think that's one of the things that really drew me into this career path on the digital commerce side um, versus pursuing um, merchandising or um, uh, or kind of the, the brick and mortar offline space is, you know, is just how um, how great the, the, the digital community has been in the U.S. Um, that I've experienced. So that's one of the one of the things that I try to do now is to make sure that I'm making myself available and kind of giving back and spending time with folks and helping them along and sharing ideas. Cause I, I know that you guys and, and others certainly did that for me way back in the day. Yeah. I, I feel like we all have done that for each other. And, so, and I feel like we've all obviously benefited greatly from that community. Um, and so then uh, you leave uh, the Eagles behind and you go join what at the time uh, was a founder uh, led a venture back pure D to C. Is that a fair characterization for, for Modcoff when you joined yeah, them? Modcoff, Modcoff was a pure play e-tailer. Yep. Um, yeah. Like 10,000 uniques on the site, uh, all third party. Um, the company was vertically integrated. So uh, homegrown. Ruby on Rails, code base, e-commerce, um, uh, order management system, um, warehouse management system, all the way down to the call center in the warehouse. It, it was um, pretty pioneering on the web services side as far as the it was an early social commerce player as far as leveraging Pinterest and things that you could do um, with Facebook and some of the other platforms, Tumblr. Um, to engage customers and, and get them to participate in the shopping experience. You know, we we were one of the first to integrate UGC from customers uh, into the um, the shopping experience, into the, the carousels on the website. Um, we had personalization that was driven by customer reviews that were captured on the website versus outsourced to a bizarre voice or the like. So it was the technology was pretty pioneering. Um, the business was was very underdeveloped, um, and the brand I felt was um, um, had a lot of opportunity to broaden its appeal when I got there. So um, it was a little bit of a turnaround uh, financially. What I joined, which having now done this a few times. Uh, there's always a reason they bring in an outside CEO. <laughs> it's not because things are just going awesome and they just want to share the awesomeness. Yeah, uh, I can't. I can't think of a single time that a, a CEO in a business that's humming and doing great says, "You know what? Let's bring in somebody else to to do this." Um, so I, I think Andy part- Jassy is saying that about Amazon right now. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a there's a lot of chatter about looking at uh, Amazon and Facebook and Tesla and what those uh, founders were doing the last couple of years selling stock. So I think they kind of all knew what was about to happen. Um, but you know, just quickly on Modcloth, I'll say that um, you know we were able to quickly come in, uh, turn around the business financially, but more importantly, we pivoted it to what then was called a DMVB model, um, a digitally native vertical brand model, which which just meant that uh, the vertical piece that you were procuring, designing, selling your own product or exclusive product versus third party, which, you know, in the world of Amazon, it's really hard to scale a business that 
you know, what you're selling, you can find on Amazon or other larger marketplaces. So um, we, we built out a design studio, a sourcing operation. Uh, we replatformed the entire tech stack. We developed a showroom concept similar to what uh, Warby and Bonobos had developed and uh, tested that and rolled that out and had a really aggressive growth plan against that. And we went out to raise money and wound up uh, getting an offer from the team at jet.com that six months previous had uh, been sold to Walmart. And they came in and made an offer and the board accepted it. And so uh, we sold it. And uh, and I stayed on at Walmart for a year and, and oversaw our integration into that, that ecosystem. Cool. The uh, and that was kind of a chain reaction, right? Weren't you guys um, several companies they acquired, and did you play a role in kind of that roll up? We we were like the third or fourth of six or seven acquisitions that they did within a year and a half, two year period. Um, and then um, as part of my year there, I did get involved in some of their um, business development M and A conversations and uh and i did uh spend a little bit of time helping them on one of the further acquisitions uh but you know they you know what i learned about walmart um when i was there is uh, they have such a strong culture they have a, a a a real clear view of who their customer is and why they're serving them and uh, you know and i would tell you that the acquisitions that spree that they went on those two years uh, was really a catalyst for something that Doug McMillan said at a meeting that I attended where he talked about convenience being valued as much as low cost in the, the kind of the, the online or multi-channel retail environment versus pre-internet. And so they had to, find a catalyst under Mark Lori to accelerate their, the, the cultural change to understand how customers writ large were valuing convenience as much as low cost when their heritage had been, you know, deploying technology to make improvements in supply chain and sourcing and merchandising so that they could always win on price. Now they had to win on price and convenience. And so Though the individual acquisitions, you could argue whether there was an ROI on them or not against the purchase price. I I would say that internally, uh, it was a massive success in creating that kind of cultural change that Doug mandated from Mark. And um, and then, you know, I was only there a year and I left, but just watching what progressed and if you look at the multiple on Walmart stock, I think it's hard to argue that it wasn't a, a success. Yeah, it's tricky with acquisitions. You can't just look at the you know the the interior mod cloth business. You have to look at the whole halo effect and the stock price. You know, there, there's a multifaceted way to look at these things. That's kind of complicated. What, yeah, did I mean, they? I think any business that they could grow, if you could grow organically indefinitely. I think most businesses would do that. There's a reason why companies, you know, use M and A. To your point, did uh, at some point I think I saw Mod Cloth work into the stores? Were you there for that? Uh, no, no. I I, um, I left before any of of those kind of uh, cross integration initiatives occurred. Yeah, and then didn't they? Did they sell it back out? Did they spin it? Yeah, they sold it back out. There were there was some after I left. There were some further leadership changes that occurred, and um, and they wound up uh, divesting it and selling it to. I want to say it was a, a firm out of New York, um, hmm. like a private equity firm, or yeah, another. Think, yeah, yeah. Did you didn't want to jump in there and take it over again? Usually, they they call the previous CEO. I I, I bet there's an eighty percent chance you got a call. Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we found something you don't want to talk about. Good. It's part part of my goal on the show is to see if we can we can find that. Um, do you have any uh, safe, family safe Mark Laurie stories? I've spent a fair amount of time with him. He is a he's a pretty wacky dude. Oh, I, I mean, I I didn't spend that much time 
uh, working for him. But, I mean, man, like talk about somebody who just has total belief in himself and the team and what's possible um, and so much energy for, for um, you know, commerce, for startups, for uh, innovation. So, I mean, it's, it was contagious working for him um working for his teams i one of the takeaways i had from my time at walmart and my time working with with mark and his jet team is i just didn't have that kind of passion for the mass market the way that you had to have to be successful working at a walmart or working at a jet before the acquisition um you know i i love the specialty space i love um, you know, the branded premium space. I love, you know, the kind of the middle market where it's not based on price and it's not luxury. It's somewhere in between. Um, I just find that, that it's super creative. There's lots of opportunities for differentiation. Um, there's always new things that you get to, to learn, but you know, uh, uh, Walmart, I, I, there was, I can't remember, don't quote me on the exact number, but like there was a conversation about like how many millions of American flags are they going to sell between Memorial Day and, and, and 4th of July yeah, uh, on one of their promos. And I was just like, I couldn't even fathom the scale of having to move that many units. Um, and so you know, so for me, it was kind of a, a validation of the lane that I've been in and um, and enjoyed being in. And so when I left um, and eventually wound up going to Lucky, that was kind of part of the calculus on my part was to get back into the into that that category, that lane of specialty. My uh, one of my first Mark Laurie experiences, I was at Jet and he was telling us how the company motto was billions or body bags. And I was like, that's kind of a weird way to motivate people <laughs> and then i talked to several employees and i was like how, how do you like it here and they're like billions are body bags that like they were just like it was a mantra like you know that they were just so focused on it was either going to be zero or this huge outcome and sure enough it was billions yeah there's de- there's definitely i mean i think i think he was a, a um a successful high school athlete so there's definitely a lot of rah-rah with with him and the team it's that's not my personality i i um at, at ModCloth, one of the investors accused me of being too calm in the boardroom. <laughs> <laughs> they said, you know, Matt, if you had slammed on the table a little bit more, you know, and I'm sitting there like, ah, like, that's this, that never crossed my mind. <laughs> that trying to make an argument to do something required me slamming my hand on the table. Tantrum, yeah. yeah but maybe yeah, that's the difference between you know a founder and and uh you know an operator scott was definitely a table slammer <laughs> I, uh, I don't believe you <laughs> I, like matt i have an engineering background and they uh they drummed that out of us in those four years totally yeah i, I think you're right i think the scientific method does not allow for that that uh level of emotion to come into uh into the argument yeah, but I will say a lot of uh, mechanical things can be fixed by hitting them with a hammer. I will. Um, the So I'm super grateful that you guys didn't throw uh, Mark Laurie under the table because I, at the moment, have to totally pander to him because his new business, he has Starbucks trucks that will drive to your house and deliver coffee to your house. So I like I feel like I need to stay in his good graces. Um, but so... So the sale happens, you transition out of mod cloth, you, uh, you've got kids, um, in college and, or, uh, in school and no source of free clothing. So I'm guessing that's what drove the, your, your interest in lucky brands. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I gotta say, um, when I worked at urban, uh, my wife, Definitely took advantage of the anthropology discount. <laughs> and uh, I act a funny, uh, funny and true story. When I was um, considering the opportunity at ModCloth, I was having a couple other conversations 
uh, in the in the fashion space. And I showed my daughter, who at the time was probably about seven or eight. Uh, I showed her the apps for the shopping apps for the three businesses that I was talking to. And I won't say who, but there was one in particular based in LA that she was like, dad, no way. <laughs> she was like, you cannot work selling that fashion, but she approved of, of mod cloth. And so, um, so I got her endorsement. So yeah, when I went to lucky, you know, it's really, um, I wasn't necessarily looking to go back into uh, fashion as much as I really thought that there was this real, there's unique opportunity with lucky they were uh, over a billion in GMV, which is to say the direct-to-consumer wholesale and the value of their licensing business in the market was over a billion dollars. So brand revenues and net revenue was like, call it 650 million. And it was independent. And there were not a lot of businesses at that scale in the U.S., that um, still were independent versus part of a conglomerate and or, or ha- had already gone public. And so I had uh, been friendly with one of the partners at Leonard Green who uh, called me about the opportunity. And after spending some time with them talking about it, I said, you really need somebody in LA full-time in the arts district where they were headquartered. And I'm not moving to LA, I'm moving actually back East. And they um, said, Hey, would you come in and manage the company to get us through holiday while we look for somebody and also give us a, a strategy, like a, like a, you know, financial model, a business case, um, a three-year strategy. And so that's how I initially got involved there was more as like a board advisor and interim manager. And then by January of 20, um, I had I'd really seen this amazing lane for an older millennial, younger Gen X that we could reposition Lucky Brand to be a cause marketer. The company did a tremendous amount of good work in downtown LA taking um, uh, old denim um, and giving it to uh, nonprofits that work with the homeless population there um, for clothing to uh, for insulation um, and and then other um, other efforts uh, to help that population. And so I felt like we could reposition lucky to not mean like going to the casino, getting lucky, but meaning gratitude. Like I feel lucky. I made it. I have the ability to spend a hundred dollars on a pair of jeans and I want to support this, this amazing company that does all this good work. And so that I had this vision for how you could reposition the brand. The business was running like it was 2005 as far as go to market. So there was a lot of heavy lifting that had to be done around digital transformation, around merchandising, around um, rationalizing the stores. There was way too much discount. So there's a lot of work to do. But I got really excited about the opportunity and wound up agreeing to stay on as exec chair in January of 2020. And part of my remit would have been to hire uh, a CEO and partner with that individual. And I had a couple of people in my network that I thought would be great for it, who'd be willing to move to LA. But two months later, um, the COVID lockdown start. And then it turned into something, you know, completely different. Then we were just trying to survive. We lost 90% of our revenue in that April. And um, we wound up making it through to July, August that summer. But at that point, you know, the damage had been done and the private equity firm decided to 
sell it to a party that had been interested in the business for a number of years, uh, which was Authentic Brands Group out of New York. So I stayed on to oversee that process. And then once the deal was done, uh, I said, uh, that was a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm exhausted um, and wound up turning down the opportunity to stay on with ABG and uh, and left. But I got to say, I'm really uh, grateful, thankful for the team that I had there because they were amazing to work with during such a difficult period that um, that Q2 and early summer of 2020, it was, uh, uh, it was really, really challenging to be in the market. And I learned a lot about myself as a leader from it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I am sure you did. Uh, I'm laughing though, because you think about all the work involved there. And so, uh, you, you decided to do something easier in your next gig, like, Oh, I don't know. Uh, like, uh, starting a from scratch business, uh, in the middle of a, uh, a, a really old, uh, nonprofit. <laughs> well, I gotta say, um, you know, after, after the, uh, the lucky experience, um, I really felt drained. Um, I didn't have uh, the passion for retail, for e-com, for digital, for for brands, for fashion, like I had for the previous, you know, 12, 15 years. And I uh, was fortunate that I have the ability to do this, but I basically gave myself 2021 off. Um, I'd been sitting on a few boards. Um, I did some consulting work. Uh, I had been angel investing for a few years. So I had a number of startup founders and CEOs that I was mentoring and advising. And I just said to myself, I really need to get re-inspired. I need to like get back out in the market broadly, see what's happening, see where the innovation is occurring. And and get excited, but also get lucky because a lot of these things from a career perspective uh, is based on timing. Uh, I was really fortunate that I went to Urban when I did. I was really fortunate to be part of ModCloth's journey during the years that I was there. The, the year that I was at Walmart was a really critical year in the Amazon v Walmart battle. Um Amazing timing to be available to do consulting work with Afterpay the exact summer that the founder moved from Australia to San Francisco. So, you know, I'm acutely aware that you you can't control timing and and you have to kind of put yourself out there. So that was my plan last year. And in doing so, what I realized was I'm like I get the most energy and I do my best work when I'm back in the phase of a company where it's focused on growth and innovation. And so no more turnarounds. The the lucky business was a turnaround. Um, ModCloth was um, a pseudo turnaround. So I just said, you know, I want to get back to, you know, that stage where it's really about solving for customer needs and market positioning and, product service innovation and deploying technology. And then I coupled that with um, also wanting to get in a part of retail where I could learn. And, you know, secondhand and what's happening right now, the this whole cultural phenomenon around thrifting and, you know, the, the pioneering work of a thread up and a real, real Poshmark, Depop, Etsy, you know, the last decade, you know, th- that was the that was the heavy lifting, you know, th- those founders, you know, basically creating the category. Um, but now there's a critical mass. Now there's consumer acceptance. So I don't I don't see it as a as a as hard as as maybe it looks like from the outside. It's um, I think it's the timing is great for the Goodwill Network to to rally around this new platform for us as a separate entity to stand up this new company, to launch this new marketplace. Um, I mean, there's definitely engineering challenges <laughs> to figuring out 
how do you successfully profitably scale um, secondhand and vintage when you know every item is unique? Um, and we have a distributed model where our sellers are um, various goodwill members across the U.S. Uh, so we're not centralized. So there's definitely some some challenges, but um, to me, that's part of the fun. That's part of the learning. Oh, I, I can imagine. Uh, I want to take just half a step backwards to make sure the listeners are tracking with exactly what you're doing now, because I think it's super interesting. So formal title is CEO of Goodwill Finds, and Goodwill Finds is a new offering from Goodwill that is selling uh, Goodwill merchant, uh, previously owned Goodwill merchandise uh, via a website. Is that the, am I close? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's worth kind of spelling out the context a little bit because it took me a little bit, honestly, to to fully understand it and, and grasp it. Um, Goodwill has been around for over 100 years. Everybody knows Goodwill. Um, it's an amazing nonprofit franchise. Uh, there is a, um, I call it a holding company. I don't know that that's the right term, but there is a parent company that owns the Goodwill master license in metro dc and they have licensed out the brand to i believe the number is 155 individual territories across the u.s and each of those territories have a goodwill organization with their own leadership team their own operations their own treasury their own board of directors um obviously they they vary in size and location and sophistication and, and, you know, mix of revenue and all those things, but they all share the same mission. And the mission of Goodwill is to uh, enhance lives through the dignity of work. And it's, and my, my older brother was born with a disability and I've watched him go uh, on and off disability a few times in his life. And I tell you that he's, his best self when he's working. And so when I first got connected with the folks at Goodwill earlier last year, uh, it really touched my heart. Like I really wanted this to be successful for them because I know how important their mission is. But as I got to learn more about the network uh, of 155 Goodwills and more about the opportunity, and there are six founding Goodwill CEOs that came together to organize this new separate entity called Goodwill Finds. We're a virtual Delaware company. And those six are the ones that are the board that I report to. And they've been working on this for years. Um, They were ready to launch this last year and decided that they needed to hire a CEO to come in, build a team, set up the company, oversee the launch. So I joined pre-revenue and we're now in our fourth month of selling. Um, the consumer response has been unbelievable. Uh, sales are, are, you know, more than doubling month over month. Um, it's, it's really, um, a unique opportunity to build something that is not only, uh, in a part of retail that is innovating and growing and scaling rapidly, but, it's also doing it for this amazing mission and, you know, really trying to redefine what does a nonprofit in the circular economy look like to deliver social impact at scale. So that, I feel like that's the mandate that I signed up for. And, you know, the team that I'm building and the business model that we're designing right now to go with the marketplace you know, it are the, you know, is the execution of that. But the bigger vision here is to create this platform that not only over time, all 155 Goodwill members will have access to be on as sellers, but that for the first time we'll have this centralized marketing funnel, brand strategy, content, uh, messaging, 1P data, um, and then a technical roadmap that we're able to deploy that 
will integrate with the store operations and the the back of house operations that will allow for shared investments in technology that all the goodwills can take advantage of. And on the consumer side, I think all the players in second hand have the same goal, which is to make the the option to buy secondhand versus new so compelling and so convenient and so exciting and cool that more and more consumption dollars go towards secondhand and, and move away from new. And by doing that, it has this incredibly measurable impact on the environment in uh, creating sustainable um uh impact um and then in our case you add to it the fact that every net dollar that we collect from our sales go back to the location where the goodwill was the item was donated to fund the goodwill programs i mean it's i feel like we're pioneering this new this new kind of business model for circularity and, and so all, all that to me is like super compelling, super interesting. Um, and uh, I'm really fortunate that uh, this opportunity found me. Cool hearing you talk about it. I can tell you like to build stuff. The uh, at Channel Advisor, we had a lot of customers that were kind of in this general space. Um, uh, the the challenge with this used consignment world is you got to, you know, I'm, I'm sure these Goodwills are getting they're only going to sell online a fraction of what comes in. So you got to figure out what, what things do you want to sell in the store versus online? You got to create digital assets, which are the descriptions and the pictures. Uh, and then you got to, you know, I, I imagine you're not going to send them to a central location. So then you've got to create a shipping method that works down at the store level. How are you guys solving all those problems at scale? Yeah. Uh well, I'll tell you a couple of things, and you're exactly right. There's a ton of operational challenges. Uh, we have a couple of things going for us. One, um, these goodwills already have the physical infrastructure. They already have donation centers. They already have micro warehouses. They're already selling online as a 3P seller through Amazon and eBay and some other uh, regional marketplaces. Wow. And so... They have a lot of these physical operations set up. Um, so we're leveraging that um, and we're not having to deploy capital to do it. That's one. Two, uh, there's there's a there's a maturity in the, the technology vendor market. You'd be surprised at how many players are in the space to automate. Um, it, we have um, a partner that we work with that leverages Google Lens technology and leverages um, the Einstein AI with Salesforce that allows us to take a lot of the heavy lifting out of item creation. Um, you know, we have vendors that we work with that um, take images of items, three-dimensional scans that send it to an outsource in India where uh, descriptions are being written for these items. Um, you know, so there's, you be sh and, and I'm learning this, Right. But you'd be shocked at how much software deployment, automation deployment already exists. Mm -hmm. So we're managing that to deploy it in a way that, um, you know, integrates into these existing operations. And um, the other thing that we have an advantage of is because we are a nonprofit, um, we're selling primarily, I mean, exclusively right now, but over time, we'll be primarily selling donated items which have, it's, it's not a, a zero cost of goods, but it's a near zero cost of goods. And so we have room in the margin line to play with value added services on each item. If we feel like there's a lift uh, that we can justify with that, you know, with respect to um, photography, with respect to, um, um, you know, metadata on, on, you know, each of the items, you know, with respect to um, how we're thinking about tagging. Um, it, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of players out there that we're evaluating right now. And um, we launched with over a hundred thousand unique items back in the first week of October. Um, Mid-December, we were 
at nearly 200,000 items. And our roadmap is to have a million unique items in our active catalog by October of this year. So the, this entire endeavor has been from the start designed for scale. Um, so we feel like that's giving us an advantage because um, we're able to do some things that other startups that are venture backed that are having to start from scratch with a lot of that infrastructure that um, have a cost of sourcing and and supply acquisition that we don't, you know, it, it would be uh, financially prohibitive for them to make some of the investments that we're making right now. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say you're using some of the AI. Uh, Jason's not a believer in AI, but I'm, I'm a big proponent. <laughs> I haven't said a word on this whole podcast. I've just been using my AI avatar. Ah, okay. That's pretty oh, good. For the record, this isn't Matt talking. This is Matt's chat GPT talking. <laughs> yeah, we, we tested both, and the chat GPT was much uh, more um, uh, salient, so we went with that. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. I don't have any follow-ups, Jason. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting to me, Matt, because you you mentioned a lot of the early pioneers in in e-commerce. And by the way, just from uh, buzzword bingo, like, are you a, a e-commerce person? Are you like, do you have a a favorite label for what you're doing now? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm back in the the interview circuit right now, trying to get the word out about what we're doing and promoting the Goodwill mission. So I'm still trying some phrases on. I I, I mean, yeah, re-commerce is definitely uh, the, mix. Okay. the buzzwords. But I think what we're doing at Google Finds and, and in partnership with the Google Network is really about circularity. You know, in my mind's eye, getting a marketplace, standing up a new marketplace from zero, um, you know, it's the old Bezos flywheel, you know, back of the napkin that I think about every day. And in my version of it, there's supply, demand, and mission. And without the mission, we don't get supply. And the better job we do partnering with our member sellers in acquiring the right supply and and listing it in a high quality way, you know, then that allows us to be able to meet demand in the market, which the proceeds from those sales go right back to the goodwill where we got the donation and there's the kind of the flywheels complete. And one of the stories around that, and this is what we have to do a better job um, this year versus last year is to get these stories, these amazing stories about the Goodwill network out into the world. Um, the, the more successful we are at Goodwill finds, meaning the more that we're able to sell and, and scale demand, the more people each of the Goodwill sellers have to hire in their e-commerce operations. Because they're doing the listings, they're doing the pick, pack, and ship on the on the outbound, but those jobs are higher skill and they and they pay better, and so it actually accelerates the local mission. The more successful we are, because they have to hire more people and bring more people and train them into these higher value jobs that then they go get placed somewhere else. They can go work within the the digital economy, you know, the digital retail industry. And so um, you know, we we really I really think about what we're doing as pioneering circularity. Um, we also are talking to some retailers and brands who want to partner with us on their uh, both on the demand and the supply side. And part of it is because we're a nonprofit that you know there's a tax write-off advantage for them, but it's there's also this ESG component to the large corporates that they have to think about, especially in in apparel, where they have to think about, you know, what is their end-to-end environmental impact. And it's 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 really I can't believe the timing of this, but it's really a moment right now, not just with consumers, but in the industry. And so um, that's another aspect of circularity where you have, you know, it's not Nike. So, but I'll just use them as an example to speak illustratively. Imagine Nike 
telling their full price customers that they can buy secondhand Nike at goodwillfinds.com. Or imagine a, a Chanel. It's not Chanel, so I'll just use them illustratively. But imagine them wanting to use us as their authentication partner so that when you find secondhand Chanel at goodwillfinds.com versus a real real or somewhere else, you can you can you know that you have this objective third party authenticator that you can partner with to control the 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 brand experience in the secondhand market. So it's um uh, I'm really excited about the possibilities and and we have a really big vision for what we're doing. I don't I think re-commerce to me feels like a term that's a, a little bit uh limiting. Totally fair. Um so maybe circular commerce. Uh it's it's interesting to me though, like so we've had a bunch of those founders from the uh circular commerce uh brands on and like their fundamental problem is not your fundamental problem. Like their biggest problem is sourcing the goods, like getting people to send them stuff. And then when they curate it, they're mostly interested in luxury designer. So they end up with a relatively poor yield and they don't have any monetization or, you know, frankly, like a, a ecologically redeeming way to, to deal with all the goods they get that aren't, that don't meet their criteria. So it's like you, you seem like they're like, through the Goodwill Network, you've got all these stores to put goods in. Um, you, you've got a bunch of, you do have luxury consumers that are searching for vintage and value, but you also have more pure value consumers. You, uh, it just seems like it's a really interesting fit because you solve some of the problems that are endemic to the re-commerce guys. You've got the first gen, um, value guys, like the, you know, the fast fashion guys who are, you know, of course, making stuff cheap, but it's an ecological disaster and they only sell like half of it and the other half ends up in a landfill and all that. Um, and then you've got the discount guys who I think is the funniest of all. I don't know if you followed this, but uh, Burlington Coat Factory right before the pandemic shut down their e-commerce and they shut it down because they fundamentally couldn't solve what you're doing. Like they, they couldn't figure out how to cost effectively make uh, product detail pages for all the, the super thin inventory that they had. <laughs> Um, and so it's just interesting, like, because you built this business on top of the Goodwill Network, it feels like you got a nice sort of head start in the, in all three corners of that problem, if you will. Yeah, Jason. So first off, I, I know a lot of the, the players, the founders, um, execs at those other places. And again, I want them all to be successful because the more successful the category is, it's a tide that will lift all boats. And I think we're all being led by the consumer who is voting yes, yes, yes. I also think that the consumer um, is not just the the deal seeker, the value seeker, but it really is a, a trend-driven, style-driven, younger consumer who, if you think about, you know, the... TikTok and Instagram and, and this this viral social world that we live in where you nobody wants to look the same uh, wearing the same things. That shopping vintage and secondhand is actually a way to to differentiate yourself and show your your individual style. So it's there's a really interesting marriage there between secondhand and and you know kind of social virality. Uh, and what's happening there. And then there's also, I'd tell you, a more affluent customer or or aspirational customer who could shop full price and does shop full price, but they really care about about you know the impact and the narrative and they want to talk about the story of where they bought it, not just what they bought. And so there's it feels like there's this really great timing of all three customer segments. And then the last thing I tell you is compared to the, the the discounters who I have read about some of them struggling with um, figuring out e-commerce. And I think I've read the rational rationalization was that it's hard to do discovery online versus in the store. Um, what I would tell you is that what we're doing augments the, in-store thrifting experience at Goodwill. 
Where, <clears throat> now, if you're shopping Goodwill at your local store, the assortment is very limited. It's what just showed up that week or that month as far as donations go. But you can do that because there are certain categories that people like to touch and feel or try on because fit matters or texture and finish and um, and material matter, you know, ha- uh, home goods and furniture and the like, or there's big bulky items that, you know, are um, easier to buy in store. But to be able to couple that with now shopping uh, the, 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 you know, I don't want to say the best, but the the ecom friendly assortment of other goodwills across the country, where now you're getting access to donations from New York to LA, Seattle to Miami, um, Chicago to Austin, and I mean, wow! Like, what a treasure trove to be able to shop your goodwill store and go online and get access to all these thrift stores in one place. I. I in our case, I think it's a massive value add. And given the fact that the Goodwill brand has been around for 100 years and already has tens of millions of customers shopping their stores, um, you know, our primary focus to start is how do we, how do we complement the in-store shopping experience to those tens of millions of customers to convert them to be multi-channel customers with the brand? And at the same time, how do we compete in the market to solicit this, this, these other two audiences that I mentioned, uh, the style and trend-driven younger consumer that's looking for vintage, that's looking for, for differentiated, as well as this, this aspirational and more affluent customer who loves the, loves the purpose, loves the mission, loves the story of circularity and wants to participate. Cool. sounds like uh, you're, you're fired up and it's going to be exciting to watch the progress. Um, We're running up against time, but while we have you, you've been at this over 15 years, the whole e-commerce retail thing. What are some of the other trends you're watching other than this circular kind of recycling element? Uh, Anything, anything interesting on your radar? Um, for example, do you think the digitally native vertical brand thing has played out or is that still got legs? Any other trends that, that are interesting to you? Yeah, well, on, on DMBB, which is, you know, just a, an iteration of DTC, mm-hmm. DTC to me was always a go to market strategy. It was never a business model. Like, yeah. like the, the, the early players, the first movers in that space who, you know, did the, um, you know, go to the source and sell an item at the wholesale price versus the retail price because you're cutting out the middleman. Like, and Zappos is, is kind of one of the one of the pioneers of that. Um, that was a momentum thing. Um, I've always viewed, and again, kind of sticking to my knitting here in the specialty premium, you know, market space. Um, I've always viewed, you know, the the brand equity, which is what we're all striving to create and and grow and maintain. You know, it gets generated by picking an attractive customer that you want to obsess about, and I don't. And attractive, I mean, somebody that you think is a viable. There's enough of them, and they're viable to have a long-term relationship with and obsessing about them to the point where you understand their needs better than they, and you can create differentiated product and service where they fall in love with your solutions, with your customer experience, and they want to tell their friends. And then you couple that with the right distribution so that you can find more people like them, which allows you to scale in an efficient manner. And direct-to-consumer, now going back 15 years, was just a new go-to-market to find more like-minded customers to ones that you already had. So at Urban, Urban already had amazingly strong brands with a lot of brand equity. So what we did riding the Web 2.0 wave was really just figuring out you know, how do we 
how do we reach the same or similar customers and give them a better experience, a different experience online than what they experience in store. And then ModCloth was the opposite. I got there and we had no physical experience. And so the exercise was, how do we take this brand love that exists at this website and and translate it into a three-dimensional experience that the existing customers would love, but would allow us to expand our market and, and introduce the brand to more people. So I, yeah, so I, I don't, I never saw DMVB by itself as a, as a sustainable business model. Um, as far as other trends in the market today, um, I, when I left Walmart, I, I did a talk where I said, I felt like it was an amazing time to start a brand. And I, and I really meant it. And I really believe that the market was, was so like, there was so much sameness in the market that, that there was a huge opportunity for, for new brands to come into the market, leverage the technologies that have matured and, and really differentiate against the incumbents. I tell you, sitting here right now after COVID, I feel like consumers have now accepted the fact that their uh, multi-line store is where they shop for everything. Like the whole idea of this retailer is essential and that one's not, and those shutdowns for a year plus, I think really changed consumer perception of where it's viable to shop and where it's not. And And so I think the bigger players have a massive advantage in this market, especially this year with inflation continuing going into a recession I, I think it's I think this year is going to be really hard for smaller players to to differentiate and survive so that's more from a consumer lens uh, from a technology lens uh, sorry to say Jason but I'm a big believer in AI and I, I think it's early days and, and what I counsel a lot of folks who are earlier in their career is find a, a mega technology trend in the market that you can get passionate about learning that you think is early innings and ride it. I, I certainly did that with e-commerce. I was there early with that, that whole social mobile local um, moment, you know, that was existing after the iPhone and Facebook launched. Um, I'm, I feel like marketplaces are like halfway up the S curve. I feel like there's still a lot more room to grow um, and so I'm working, you know, on that technology curve right now with Goodwill Finds. Uh, but I would say that um, there, I don't I'm not a believer in Web 3.0 today. It feels like the dot com in the late 90s where it was five years too early. Um, there just weren't enough participants to make it viable. I, I think Web 3.0 in whatever form it takes is five years out before it becomes something that you could commercially work on. Um, and then, you know, I'd say, um, I think the subscription um, in, in a lot of categories uh, is having a lot of success right now, which is less about technology and, and more about um, business model. But, um, you know, that's, that's, that's an area as well that I think is worth exploring for a lot of businesses that are trying to figure out, ways to monetize their audience. Uh, Matt, that is awesome. Uh, basically, we're mostly aligned. I'm 100% with you on AI. I'm also with you on Web Web 3 slash Metaverse being too early. Uh, the one thing I'm going to, just for the record, disagree on is uh, I, I, I can't publicly admit that marketplaces are a thing because that'll that'll go to Scott's head too much if we admit that. <laughs> um, but uh, it's going to surprise no one, Matt, uh, that it's happened again. We've used slightly more than our allotted time. Uh, so we're going to leave it with those words of wisdom from you. As always, if listeners found value from this show, we sure would love it if you'd uh, jump on iTunes and leave us that five-star review. But Matt, uh, so awesome to reconnect and, and congrats on everything you're doing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's fun to watch. And, and for your point, like it's, it's also adding a heck of a lot of value to the world. Guys, I, I really appreciate the time. Uh, always great to reconnect. Congrats on the pod. I'm a huge fan. And uh, let's do it again at number 500. 
Sounds good. Matt, if folks want to find you online, are you on the, uh, are you on MySpace? Where, where do you hang out? <laughs> yeah. Um, have you heard of Tumblr? No. <laughs> um, yeah, but just, uh, if anybody needs to get a hold of me, uh, reach out, uh, through LinkedIn, um, and my contact information is there. Sounds good. We really appreciate t- taking time and good luck with the new venture. It sounds really exciting. All right. Thanks guys. And until next time, Happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 